Good morning. Grace and peace to you. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. A genealogy, really? Um, I know it sounds dry, and sometimes this week as I've been studying, I wonder what I was thinking when I chose this passage a couple months ago, but it's really worth our time. Now, today marks the first day of Advent. Um, That's a Latin term that simply means arrival. And so Advent is a season, and it's my favorite season, I think. Uh, We put up our Christmas tree and got out the Christmas songs way before Thanksgiving. Um, It's a time when we prepare ourselves for the coming of the Messiah, where we sort of build just little by little expectation, longing, waiting to celebrate the arrival of our Lord Jesus and look forward to when he returns. Now, all those themes are there in this genealogy. Now, we're a pretty rootless society, right? Um, So naturally, the many biblical genealogies throw us off. We kind of don't know what to do do with them. Because we define ourselves as a people or as persons by our location. So, if you met someone, you're typically going to describe those kind of things, or we define ourselves that way. So I'm the kind of person who lives in such and such a place, or we define ourselves by our possessions. I'm the kind of person who has these things, or we define ourselves by what we do. I'm the kind of person who has this job or has these particular hobbies and etc. But the one thing we don't define ourselves by is our ancestry. Right, the day I met you, I didn't introduce myself as Alexander, the son of Stanley, as cool as that would have been. Um, we define ourselves by different things. And of course, I can trace uh, my genealogical line back to the last three generations, but it stops there. I can look in the records and find that Montaños came to the New World in the 1500s. And I can spit in a tube and send it to the lab and find out that I'm mostly Spanish with some Native American and even some Irish ancestry. It's for us more of an interesting act of self-discovery than it is for the Israelites, this concept of ancestry and genealogy. In that day, a person was their ancestry. They were their descendants or the descendants uh, that they came from. So the genealogy here at the beginning of the gospel serves three specific purposes. Now, if you're familiar, Matthew's gospel, the best that we can tell, was addressed to a Jewish audience. Uh, An audience, remember, people who mostly rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Even after his resurrection, the majority of Jewish people did not go along with the new movement. And so Matthew's gospel has an apologetic aim to it. He means to show his audience that Jesus, the man put to death on a cross, the man who maybe didn't fit up to what people thought about the Messiah, who he was supposed to be, that this one is in fact the long-awaited Messiah, the one predicted in the scriptures from the very beginning. So hence a genealogy. That's part of the function that it plays. And it begins with the phrase in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Now in the Greek, it literally reads, Biblios Genesos. And it's literally translated as the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. 
the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. Now, Matthew here, right at the outset of his gospel, is making a not-so-subtle allusion to Genesis. In fact, that phrase, Biblios Genesis, appears throughout Genesis um, from which it derives its name. You'll find that at certain periods in Genesis, it'll just break out into a genealogy, and it will begin with those words. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, Genesis 2.4. Or the next genealogy, this is the book of the generations of Adam, Genesis 5.1, the Biblios Genesis of Adam. So what Matthew is telling us here, by just sort of inserting that phrase from Genesis, is that Jesus is the culmination of a story that has its roots, that has its beginning at the very outset of history. In other words, Jesus is not an innovator. He's not a Johnny-come-lately. Jesus, Matthew says, is the son of David. He is the heir of a family line that runs back 42 generations to the very father of the Israelite people, Abraham. Now, if you keep reading through the Gospel of Matthew, um, we're going to follow past Christmas and we'll go into chapter 2 as well, but we'll likely stop there. But if you keep reading, you'll find that this is a great concern for Matthew. His constant refrain is, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken. So something unusual will happen in Jesus' life and you'll say, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken. The fact that he went down to Nazareth, the fact that he, or to Egypt and came back to Nazareth, and so on and so forth. And of course, Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So this theme of fulfillment is very important to Matthew. And throughout his gospel, he labors to show to his audience, the Jewish people, that this is nothing new. It was prefigured in the scriptures like an ultrasound, and now it's being fulfilled exactly as it's been planned. Now, the second purpose excuse me, of the genealogy is to portray Jesus not just as the inheritor of all this history, but as the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. In verse 17, that you have on the screen for you there, Matthew provides a summary statement for the entire genealogy. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So obviously, this number 14 is important. Now how so? Now I think there are two solid answers. Um, a lot of theories, but I think two of them have some real solid meaning to them. The first is that this number 14 has something to do with David. Now, we'll talk about that next week. There's some really cool things going on here. But it also has something to do with this theme of completion. There are three cycles of 14, Abraham to David, David to the deportation, the deportation to the Messiah. Three cycles of 14, which can be broken down into six cycles of seven. 3 of 14, 6 and 7. And, of course, in biblical numerology, if you're at all familiar, 7 is the number of completion. Six days God labored to create heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested. It's the number of completion. So Jesus, the Messiah, comes on the scene of human history as the seventh seven. His birth, in other words, marks the completion of Israel's generations. 
Six sevens leading up to this point. All these generations and finally, Jesus' birth is the beginning of the seventh cycle of sevens. Now there's also other things going on there with the Sabbath, the day that God rested, other things in uh, Israel's history. But what Matthew's trying to say is that here, now, at the fullness of time, all the loose threads of Israel's history will be tied up in this one, in the Messiah. All of God's outstanding promises to his people, specifically those promises that he made to Abraham and David, will come good in this son born of a virgin. So you can see Matthew sort of building this expectation. And lastly, the genealogy serves to demonstrate God's faithfulness. It ends prior to the arrival of the Messiah on a tragic note, the genealogy does, with the nation of Israel being carried away into a foreign land. Despite all of God's history with these people, despite God's promises to these people, their story comes crashing down underneath the weight of their sins. They broke the covenant and they were exiled. And eventually they wound up back in Israel, but even then, they were not their own rulers. They were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And listen, this was not a fate that, or rather, this was not fate that gave them over to the hands of foreign oppressors. It was God on account of their idolatry and disobedience. So Israel's history at this time, it seems that it's come to an end with a sigh. And they're clinging to the faded glory of days gone by, of King David and those great days. But now we're, we're in exile. We're under the boot of the Roman Empire. But Matthew means to say that God has not given up on his promises. At just the right time, he comes, the Messiah. These ancient covenants that God made to Abraham and David have not turned up empty. God will bless the nations as he promised to. He will establish his kingdom as he promised to. And all these things, Matthew is saying, will be done through the son of the virgin, Jesus, Emmanuel, who is God with us. So this genealogy seems like an odd and sort of anticlimactic way to introduce the Messiah. But when we understand Matthew's purpose, when we understand what this would have meant to his original readers, uh, it's quite thrilling, and it sets the stage beautifully for what's to come. Upon this one rest all the hopes and the desires of Israel. Upon this one rest all the covenant promises that God has made. He bears, quite literally, on his shoulders the entire future of the world. So, Matthew's genealogy. With that, I want to just get into some of the details of the genealogy. Now, Matthew makes it clear, by his use of the genealogy, that to understand Jesus and what it means for him to be the Messiah we need to understand the history of Israel. That is, God's dealings and promises to these specific people. Now, you'll be glad to know that I don't intend to cover each and every name in the genealogy, only two. 
the ones that Matthew gives specific attention to. Again, in verse 1 of the first chapter, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do as the Messiah, we must understand these men. Now, why these two men? Well, because they represent the two great promises, or covenants as the Bible terms them, that God made with his people and through his people the entire human race. Now, we'll come to David next week, but first up is Abraham. And essentially, what God promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12, at the very beginning of his dealings, was worldwide blessing. God promised that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, Abraham was a pagan. He worshipped foreign gods in the land of Ur. And God separated him from his home and his people. He said, Abraham, leave. Get out. And he called him to a new land. He said, go to a land to which I will show you. And there, God promised that he would make a great nation from Abraham of course, the Jewish people, and that he would make Abraham's name great. To this day, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all claim Abraham as their father. His name is indeed great. So God promised him that, and he promised him that he would bless those who blessed him, and that he would curse those who cursed him. But the culmination, as we've already noted, of the covenant promised to Abraham was that through him and through the people that would eventually come from him, God would bless all the families of the earth. That's Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. That God would bless all the families of the earth. Now in that short passage, it's only three verses. As God promises to Abraham, he says the word bless, or some variation of it, five different times. Five different times the word bless comes up in God's promise to Abraham. Now that's important because if you read through Genesis up to the point where God calls Abraham, the word curse also appears five times. And it's a clue, this sort of repetition or this, uh, uh, this opposite, it's a clue to God's promise, or it's a clue rather to understanding what God's promise to Abraham is all about. When God calls Abraham, it's, a pro, it's, a, it's an answer, excuse me, to the consequences of the fall. Abraham and his descendants will be the ones through whom are the channel through whom the curse is rolled back, through whom divine blessing is returned to the earth. Now at the beginning, when God created humans, the first thing that he did was bless them. His first action after our creation was to bless us. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, it says, God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And then it continues, and God blessed them. Now, God's original blessing upon the human race represents his purpose for us. God did not create the human race under a curse. His will for us is not our harm. Rather, it's our blessing. And it signifies God's approval and his goodwill toward the human race. He created us 
to bless us. Now, in the scriptures, blessing is primarily associated with abundance and prosperity. Again, Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. God's blessing is connected to fruitfulness and multiplication. In other words, God's blessing, when he gives it, makes life spring up. The womb produces, the soil and all things in the earth bear abundant fruit. And this association of blessing and fruitfulness and prosperity obviously finds its focal point in the Garden of Eden, the original home of the human race. The garden was a place dripping with abundance. There we dwelt under God's blessing, and there living waters ran through its midst. The tree of life was planted at its center, and God's presence met us in the cool of the day. Indeed, Scripture says, Psalm 1, the blessed man, right? What does he do? He meditates in the Scripture day and night. And what does the Psalm say of him? He's like a tree planted by streams of water, and he bears fruit in season, Psalm 1-3. The prophet Jeremiah says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, Why? Well, he'll be like a tree planted by water. Its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Blessing is associated with prosperity, with fruitfulness. And it's this abundance, increase, and plenty that God created the human race for. He created us for his blessing. And it's important that we know this ourselves and that we communicate it to outsiders. Though God is indeed opposed to us in our sin, He is not ultimately opposed to us. He created us for His blessing. And that will stands, fixed and immovable. And in our day of pessimism and despair, this needs to be heard. God is for His human creatures, including you and me. So God promises, or God at the outset rather, blesses humans. And he promises through Abraham to bring that back. Now what's happened, the opposite of a blessing is a curse. And that's what humans fell into through disobedience. Listening to the serpent, humans were exiled from the garden and God's blessing on them was repealed, at least partially. Fruitfulness, the garden, gave way to barrenness to the wilderness. The womb that was meant to bring forth abundant life will still bring forth life, but now with great difficulty, God says. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, he says, in pain you will bring forth children. And even the land is placed under a curse. It will no longer yield abundant fruit like in the garden, where, again, they were working, but It was a garden. You could pick from the tree and it were provided for immediately. It's no longer going to be that way. But now God says, Genesis 3.18, the land will yield thorns and thistles for you or it shall grow for you. So fruitfulness is now given way to barrenness. And it speaks more, these early chapters of Genesis, to, to, to more than just the womb and the soil. Everything now lies under a curse. 
Jeremiah, again in that same passage I mentioned earlier, he says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony places in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Now in ancient times, victorious armies would often salt the lands of the peoples that they conquered literally sowing just an incredible, almost unbelievable amount of salt into the soil to ensure that it would never produce again, at least in their lifetimes. And that's the picture that Jeremiah gives us of the curse. Our world and our lives become a land of salt and a land of waste. Not the blessing that we were intended for, but wastefulness. Or not even wastefulness, but pure waste. Now, I just want to take a moment to note how accurately the Scripture describes the human situation. All of our efforts, even our best and most noble ones, lie under a curse, meaning they don't bear the fruit that we had hoped. Instead, our plans and our dreams and our goals and our aspirations, they bear thorns and thistles. In Romans chapter 8, Verse 20, when the apostle is talking about this, not even on a local level, but on a universal scale, the word that he uses is futility. Meaning, because the curse that lies upon things, or the curse that lies upon things, it ensures that whatever we do doesn't amount to anything. It's futile. As that vision in Ecclesiastes lays out, life is labor without payoff. It's work without production. It's effort without results. It's like Isaiah says in his later prophecies, it's like a woman who labors and labors and labors and hopes to bring forth a child, but it says gives birth to air. Now I sense that's how many people feel today. Stuck. Stagnant. That their efforts, no matter how well planned out or how meticulously executed, will amount to nothing in the end. It seems that we're waiting for a spring that will never come. And all around us, in our society, there is material abundance. That's not what we're talking about. There's material abundance more than any other people ever, yet there's no fruitfulness. We have all these things. We, couldn't, we don't lack anything, and yet there's no fruitfulness. It all seems so thin and so hollow, so we retreat into entertainment and distraction and levels of depression and anxiety and all these things of suicide are up and higher than they've ever been. So Jeremiah's description is apt, a bush in the desert, a, 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 a land of salt, and we long for refreshment. Now, this is the way things are. This is our world under the curse of sin. And this is the way things always would be except for that covenant promise that God made to Abraham. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Days of refreshment, days of abundance, of life, God promises, will return. I'd just like to read for you a wonderful promise and prophecy from Isaiah he says, and springs in the midst, uh, excuse me, I'm, I will open up rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water 
and the dry land a fountain of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress, that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. It will bring forth abundance. That parched and barren land will bear fruit. It will be a green pasture. So God gives this blessing or gives this promise of blessing to Abraham, but Abraham never sees it come to fruition. Part of this idea of blessing is that Abraham's wife, Sarah, she never had a child. And God blesses her womb. There's fruit. And that's about all that Abraham has. He he dies and never receives the blessing, and neither does the nation of Israel. It experienced days of abundance and prosperity under David and Solomon. But for the most part, those days were few, and it was brought down in grief and in barrenness instead. So that brings us now to Jesus the Messiah, the son of Abraham. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This promise of blessing rests upon him either He will save us from this curse or no one will. Indeed, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel says, for he will save his people from their sins. Chapter 1, verse 21. In other words, the Messiah will release blessing to the world by saving us from our sins. Now that's surprising. It's surprising then, and it's surprising today. What is the Messiah supposed to save us from? Our national enemies, the audience of Matthew would have said. The Messiah is supposed to save us from the Romans who occupy our land. And they understood, of course, the Messiah to be a military figure, a mighty warrior like his father David. Yet Matthew here provides quite a different picture. He comes to save us not from this or that empire, but sin. Now imagine for a moment if we ask that question today. What does the Messiah come to save us from? Now I imagine the answers that we would get would be broadly similar. The Messiah comes to save us from poverty. He comes to save us from war and strife, from the mental health crisis that afflicts our nation. He comes to save us from the uh, collapsing economy, from ruined relationships and broken homes. These are the things he comes to save us from. And that he comes to save us from sin seems to miss the mark. These other matters are more urgent. They're more obvious. They're more dire. Like, of course, this is what he's going to save us from. So how how do we respond to that? What does the Christian message say? Well, on the one hand, it affirms that we do need to be saved from these things. God does not dismiss them. Indeed, on the last day, God will eradicate these things. They will have no place in his kingdom. They will no longer make war. They'll beat the instruments of war into implements and tools of farming. The lion will dwell with the lamb. All these things will be gone. Yet on the other hand... And this is the uniqueness of the Christian message. The good news treats these matters as symptoms and not causes. 
That is, the human problem cannot be solved by mere economics. It cannot be solved by mere politics or therapy or education. Sure, in some cases, those might be able to alleviate some symptoms, like over-the-counter medication, but true healing requires something more, something deeper. Now, a bit later in Matthew's Gospel, you guys are familiar with the story, some friends go to great lengths to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And seeing their faith, the scripture says, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Now, this was the last thing anyone expected. Imagine the response of the people, especially from the paralytic. Um, thank you, but this is not what I came from. I need to walk, not to be forgiven. And of course, the more theologically minded that were in the crowd that day, they saw this or they, they heard this and they had serious problems. And they said to themselves, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, he perceived their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking and he responded. Oh, I guess I could have done that. There it is. Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 and 6. Which is easier, or Matthew chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, yeah, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, the whole point of this encounter is to show us the priority of forgiveness. Before all else, Jesus points us toward the essence of our problem to show us that if you are not healed here, then however many good things you may find in your life, you are not truly healed. What good is it to have two working legs and to then use them to run into sin and eventually be cast into hell? Humans are not merely materialistic creatures. We are spiritual beings, and true healing proceeds from that spiritual core. Apply all the earthly remedies that you'd like, and they may take care of some of the symptoms, but never the problem. The only thing that will heal us is forgiveness and the removal of sin. And in our secular environment, we need to keep a firm grip on this. Otherwise, what happens is we lose the distinctiveness of our own message. Listen, greater than human strife and war is the wrath of God. More terrible than poverty and mental health, the mental health crisis is to perish eternally. It's ultimately with sin that the Messiah has to do. He appears once at the fullness of time to strike the problem at its root to die on the cross and to save us from sin, and he will appear again once more at the fullness of time to pluck that root of sin up from the soil, to judge it and to remove it from its kingdom forever. And then all those symptoms will be removed. There will be no more war. There will be no more mental health issues. There will be more, no more poverty or anything of that like. With the removal of sin comes blessing, the blessing of Abraham. 
And now I'd just like to end by looking at how the Messiah does this. He removes sin by entering into it. So after narrating the birth of Jesus, Matthew breaks into an editorial comment, which I don't think I have here. So let me read it for you. It's Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord uh, through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, more will be said about this great passage in the coming weeks. For now, let's simply know that God, when he comes to deal with the problem, he doesn't keep a holy distance. He doesn't delegate his dirty work to others, nor does he hover above the mess. Instead, he comes as the heir of a particular history with real names and real sins. Jesus is the son of adulterers. He's the son of murderers. He's the son of liars and cheats, of cowards and of fools. The high and holy one humbles himself to become Emmanuel, God with us in our sinful and accursed condition. And I just want that to be a comforting word to you as we start this Advent season. God doesn't look down upon you from a great distance. He doesn't stand in the lofty heights gazing his holy eye upon you and your sin. No, Emmanuel is near. He's with you in all of your treachery, and all of your weakness, not to judge you, but to save you. You won't find him by looking up because he's not there. He's God with us. He's God with you, entered into your human condition. Born in Bethlehem's manger, Emmanuel then takes the road to Jerusalem's cross. Now, as he hung upon the cross, he wore upon his brow a crown of thorns. We should see that crown, and we should, our minds rather, should go back to Genesis. Cursed is the ground because of you, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. On the cross, Jesus was crowned with a curse. Emmanuel is not simply with us, as in beside us, cheering us on from a distance. You can do it. He enters into our very condition, and he takes our sins, not imaginary sins, real sins, right? The black and evil things that we've done, he takes those upon him. He's with us, you and I, even in our sinful deeds. We're not forsaken. He is with us even then. And he takes our sins from us, and he makes them his own. They become his sins. And not with us, but for us, he bears the curse of our sins on the cross. Emmanuel becomes like an unfruitful tree, like an unproductive land that bears no fruit. He dries up on the cross, as it were, and he says, John 19, verse 28, I thirst. That's the curse of sin. Yet there, in the midst of the curse, God is working a blessing. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. As Jesus himself said, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Emmanuel, God with us, is the seed of blessing that's sown once again into the barren and forsaken earth. He is laid to rest alone in the tomb that he might not remain alone. If it dies, it bears much fruit. And in the resurrection, the seed of blessing sprouts and it bears much fruit. Emmanuel lifts the curse upon our lives. And so as we turn to the table now, I'd like us to remember what these elements, the bread and cup, proclaim that signify the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. They proclaim that message of Emmanuel, God with us, with us to deliver us from sin and from death and from the devil and from hell. So come receive the elements now and I'll lead us in just one moment.